You're listening to the Holistic Nootropics Podcast, your home for holistic, evidence-based cognitive enhancement strategies. And now your host, Eric Levi. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Holistic Nootropics Podcast, where we discuss using nootropics, biohacking, and nutrition to help you boost your cognition. My name is Eric, and today we have an awesome podcast planned for you with Dr. Miles Nichols. Just a quick heads up before we get started. If it is your first time checking out the podcast, if you're watching this on YouTube, just click the subscribe button down below, hit the little bell icon so you get notified every single time a new podcast drops. And if you were listening to the audio version of this on your favorite podcast player, also make sure you hit that subscribe button if you are not yet subscribed. So this can pop up in your podcast feed every single time we release a new podcast, which is basically every single week. And if you are enjoying the podcast as we go along, it would help us out so much if you head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave the podcast a five-star review. Also, feel free to drop a comment in the YouTube comment section if you're enjoying the podcast with any questions, concerns, comments, prior experiences with what we talk about today. And if you are someone who is looking for the best quality supplements and nootropic products on the market today, then head on over to holisticnootropics.com and download a copy of my free supplement buying guide. This is a fully comprehensive guide that will walk you through ingredient by ingredient on what to look for in the best quality supplements and nootropics. Because as my guest, Dr. Miles probably knows, there is a lot of junk on the market today. A lot of people are trying to make a quick buck by selling you suboptimal products. You have a lot of fly-by-night operations, even the stuff you see in the big retailers like Walgreens, Costco, even on Amazon, you're going to find a lot of products that really don't cut the mustard as far as quality goes. There's a lot of preservatives and flow agents and things that manufacturers use to get stuff out the door very quickly. So you want to get only the best quality stuff. So you want to know the stuff to look out for so you don't fall for those suboptimal quality supplement traps. Again, I put that all in the supplement supplement guide that you can get for free over at the homepage on holisticnootropics.com right there at the top of the page. Okay, let me introduce our guest today, Dr. Miles Nichols. Dr. Nichols is a co-founder of the Medicine with Heart Institute, a functional medicine training school, a school that focuses on certifying practitioners around the world in advanced functional medicine testing. Alongside his wife, Dr. Diane Mueller, Dr. Miles co-founder, founded the Medicine with Heart Institute, who inspired him to help others and change the world. After his father passed and his battle with Lyme disease, Dr. Miles sought to help others take back control of their health. Dr. Miles and Dr. Diane co-authored the books, How to Use Your Mind to Heal Your Mold and Lyme and Stress Resilience. Dr. Miles also has a doctorate in Oriental Medicine. Dr. Miles Nichols, welcome to the Holistic Nootropics Podcast. Thank you so much, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. It is my pleasure to have you. Uh, like I was saying before we actually started, this has been a theme that has uh, popped up in my last few podcasts. Um, so it must be in the zeitgeist out there, which is the line. Um, and I've had several other conversations with, uh, regarding mold. I'm sure we're going to jump into um, you know, gut health and these sorts of things. But the whole idea of functional medicine, I, I love having these conversations because it's, it's really at the heart of my own personal transformation. You slowly see this wave kind of growing with momentum of more mainstream medical doctors turning to functional medicine, patients becoming more aware of the benefits of functional medicine and root cause testing and these sorts of things. So I would love to know your story. Why, why did you get into, you know, functional medicine and, and, and what really inspired you to take the path of medicine that you've chosen? 
Yeah. So as you, as you mentioned in your intro, my father, he was a doctor. He also was into public health and policy, and he was doing a lot of great work in the world. He had really advanced his career. He was helping so many people. And then when I was 15, he suddenly and unexpectedly had a heart attack. And I remember the moment when I got the call, I was babysitting for a, a friend of my sister and, and I was told something's happened. Your father's in the hospital. You're going to have to go and, and figure that out. And I remember the whole experience of feeling just torn up about the fact that, that he was at the pinnacle of his career. He was doing so much good for so many people. And yet this happened to him. It was a surprise. He had the best medical knowledge from medical school at Stanford and from a master's in public health at Harvard. And he had the best knowledge that was available. And yet we didn't see this coming. It really started me thinking, and there's got to be some ways to look at preventive and optimization care and chronic disease. I started to research chronic disease and realized that CDC now says six in 10 Americans have at least one chronic disease, four in 10 have two or more chronic diseases. So a majority of people are walking around with at least one chronic disease in America. And many, almost half are 40% are walking around with two or more chronic diseases. And this happened to me too. I was in, I was in, I was early 20s. I, I was struggling with chronic fatigue. I was trying to get through school. I was having a hard time. I almost was gonna not be able to complete school and live my dreams. I started to feel like is something wrong with me? Uh, I went to the doctor. They said, nothing's wrong with your blood. Maybe you're depressed. I, I I started to buy into that. I started to feel like, is that, you know, am I cut out to do medicine? Am I cut out to be a practitioner? Am I cut out to live my dreams? Maybe I need to resign to something less. And, and, and the principal of the school pulled me into the office. She said, look, I think you're, you're brilliant. Like you're getting good grades. Like I think something's going on medically. You need to figure that out. And that it really inspired me. I went on a journey and because I did, I was, I went to a doctor. They didn't, couldn't find anything. I went to another doctor, I went to another, I went to another. I started going to everyone I could think of it, every kind of practitioner. And most people couldn't find much going on. And I had to really, it, it took a long time of finding mentors and, and, and many different learnings and lessons and, and personally researching in order to figure out that, that I did have a thyroid problem. It took a long time to figure that out. I did have a gut problem with no gut symptoms. That took a really long time to figure out. I did have an autoimmune issue with no obvious symptoms. That took a long time to figure out. And then I did have a line with co-infections and uh, mold illness. And this all was, I had no cohesive system to help me through this. It took it took many, many years. It took almost a decade to figure all this out and sort through it. And, and I don't want to have other people have to struggle for that long. And, and I don't want other people to, to, to have a family member, a tra to have to experience a tragedy of a, someone at the pinnacle of their career, helping a lot of people, passing on before it's needed if we were to be able to look at optimization, if we were to be able to look at prevention, and if we were to be able to look at the causes of chronic disease and reverse them earlier. So that's really my passion is to, to try to end the chronic disease epidemic and help people be able to live their passion, live their purpose, and optimize their health and function. And that's what inspired me to put together a clinic and a practitioner training program, clinic to help individuals, practitioner training program to help practitioners who are helping individuals. 
That's a great story. And I, a lot of people could probably relate to that. I always say it's just amazing when you look at the average person, first of all, when six out of 10 people have at least one chronic disease, I think you could safe to say the average person has a chronic disease, which is yeah. frightening, right? Because I've yeah. seen that statistic many times myself, you know, I've seen it it's right there on the CDC's website. I mean, it's actually like a big infographic. They're almost like trying to like really put it out there in the most like almost kind of comical way they can. Like, isn't this crazy? Six out of 10 Americans have one chronic disease. Um, but in your experience, I'm curious, how, how did you come to the conclusion that you had these issues without symptoms? Yeah. Yeah. It was hard. I mean, chronic fatigue was my symptom, but that doesn't go far in conventional medicine. They don't know what causes that. So it really, I mean, unless you have an overt thyroid issue or you have an overt B12 deficiency or something like that, but I didn't, I had my labs looked normal, but they weren't optimal. And it took me a long time to figure out the difference between normal and optimal function on labs. And so when my TSH came out at above three and into the fours by conventional ranges, they said, Oh, that's okay. Realized that those ranges are based oftentimes on the 95% of people and the 2.5% the on the upper or the bottom are like cut out of the labs. And, and so, but 95% of people are not well clear. 60% have at least one chronic disease and thyroid disease in and of itself is a high percent. It's almost 10%. And so to have that be something that I, I had to figure out what are optimal ranges and I had to do it for myself. I had to listen to podcasts. I had to read articles and I had to actually go directly to PubMed and read research and try to figure out like, okay, if this thyroid is suboptimal, which is the first thing I figured out, what research shows thyroid antibodies? Because most thyroid issues are autoimmune. I had to figure that out, even though I didn't have autoantibodies. And then I had to figure out what things are associated. So that led me to look for H. pylori, which when treated reduces thyroid antibodies, but I didn't have symptoms. So I had to, I had to see the research-based link between fatigue and thyroid problems, suboptimal thyroid function in H. pylori in order to even test myself. And it took two tests to find it. The first one missed it second one found it. And so it really wasn't easy. It wasn't easy at all. And I had to figure out how to test myself for that. And, and then I read that 20 to 30% of people have an autoantibody, an autoimmune issue against cells in the stomach who have thyroid issues. So then I thought, okay, I'm going to test myself for that. And then I had that. And that was also a shock. No one had ever told me anything about getting that tested or screening for that. And they, I had to figure it out. So for me, unfortunately, it was a lot of digging into, like I found one thing and then I had to go in a rabbit hole of research to look at what other things. And eventually that led me to infections and toxins, which became big players for me in treating and, and figuring out that those made a big difference in my energy. So I think one place where people get a, get really confused when it comes to thyroid, we can we can start with the thyroid because like I find probably the thyroid conversation will cascade into all these other things, um, and that's that's really interesting that you discovered these things for yourself because the average person just doesn't understand. Okay, if you have a high TSH, isn't that a good thing? Why is why is a high TSH worse than a low TSH? So let's start there. Yeah. So thyroid stimulating hormone, TSH isn't actually thyroid hormone itself. It's a signal from the brain telling the thyroid how much hormone to produce. So the hypothalamus tells the pituitary, tells the thyroid produce this much hormone. And if, if the pituitary is producing a lot of thyroid stimulating hormone, 
that means that thyroid hormone's probably low. Think about it like a thermostat. If it's cold, you want to, you know, you want to turn the temperature up. You're going to like set the thermostat high. So if TSH is set high, that's because it's too low of thyroid hormone. So it's like the thermostat that's getting set based on the levels of thyroid hormone. So it's an inverse, what we call an inverse marker. High means low and low means high in terms of if you're looking at thyroid function. Mm-hmm. So basically, um, and when we say thyroid hormone, are we talking about T4 or T3? Yeah. So thyroid hormone, T4 is thyroid hormone, but T4 mm-hmm. is in the inactive form. So the thyroid mostly makes T4, but then T4 gets converted into T3 in different tissues in the body. Some in the thyroid itself, some in the liver, some in the gut. So the thyroid hormone T4 is not the one that has its effect in the cell and on the metabolism and on energy and on cognition and on digestion. It's actually the T3 that has the impact. So T4 mostly is made in the thyroid. So there's thyroid stimulating hormone from the brain telling the thyroid how much hormone to produce. And then the thyroid makes T4 mostly, and then T4 gets converted into T3 in different tissues in the body. And then T3 gets carried by these molecules, the, and some of it's bound to these molecules, and then some of it gets unbound and becomes what we call free T3. Free T3 is the direct active portion of thyroid hormone. And so infrequently is free T3 measured. It's a, it's a shame because that that's the actual what's having its effect in the cells. So I measure T3, free T3 on pretty much every patient who comes into the clinic because I want to know what's the active thyroid hormone. Sometimes TSH looks okay, but free T3 is quite low, meaning it's not active. There could be a T4, T3 conversion problem where the brain is saying make T4, thyroid saying, okay, I'm making it. But then the T4, T3 conversion is inadequate. And so then the activity in the cells is low and you can see thyroid symptom with normal or high normal TSH, which was part of what happened with me. I had that high normal TSH. I didn't know the optimal range. I didn't have free T3 measured. And then there are thyroid antibodies, which can also be measured that show the immune system attacking the thyroid. And sometimes when I measure thyroid antibodies on someone, they will have thyroid antibody elevation with still normal thyroid hormone, meaning the immune system has started an attack against the thyroid, but it's not destroyed enough tissue that there's any meaningful issue with actual production of thyroid hormone and unlikely to be so much symptomatology. But the the process has started to later potentially lead to bigger problems. And if we can arrest the process earlier, we can make a much bigger difference than after tissue has been damaged by the immune system. And what is a thyroid antibody and what, what are you, what are you measuring? Because there is, you know, if you go to a lab, you get IgG, IgA, IgE, like where, is that one of those? Yeah. So antibodies are those immunoglobulins. So the immune system, basically when there's a threat, the immune system is supposed to take a new threat and make antibodies against it. So, so we know, for example, that when when this when when a new something comes around when a new influenza or flu or virus comes around that people can make antibodies to it but before the immune system knows it won't make antibodies same thing with 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 tissue but tissue is a little different because self tissue it's a, it's not supposed to attack self like it's supposed to attack 
viruses, parasites, bacterial, things that are foreign that could cause problems in the body. So it's really great to make antibodies against a pathogen. And the immune system makes antibodies against the pathogen, which tells the immune system attack, attack this pathogen. An antibody has like, it's like a, a lock and key with a particular tissue. So if, if a, an organism tissue like a bacteria looks like a certain shape key, the antibody is like a, a lock that fits that key. And then the immune system attacks and, and works to phagocytize and works to get rid of that infection. However, what happens is that some tissue looks a lot like infection. So for example, Lyme disease, so Borrelia bacteria, Borrelia burgdorferi is a bacteria that causes Lyme. It's a spirochete-shaped bacteria, causes Lyme disease, tick-borne transmission. If you get Borrelia burgdorferi, there have been research studies that have shown that when they look at the DNA sequence, the genetics of Lyme, and there, there's a, a part of that sequence that looks almost exactly like thyroid tissue. And so it's sort of like if you were to put out the poster for the most wanted person and the police are going after them, but like someone looks a lot like them, they're likely to get taken in and they might get prosecuted. So it's sort of like this situation where the immune system gets this image of, okay, this is the tissue. Uh, this is the, the, the sequence of the, the, the protein sequence of this problem pathogen, like Lyme disease, for example, or sometimes food proteins. That's another story we can get to if we want. But, but sometimes the immune system is like, okay, this is a problem. This shouldn't be in the blood. This is problematic. So, And it just so happens that thyroid tissue looks a lot like that. So then we have this thing called molecular mimicry or cross-reactivity, where the immune system is trying to deal with a pathogen. Inadvertently, it's attacking self. It's attacking its own tissue. So maybe it's trying to attack Lyme or a food protein or a pathogen of some sort, but inadvertently, the immune system has triggered a response against thyroid tissue. And that means the immune system is attacking thyroid tissue. And depending on which tissue it's attacking, you might see thyroglobulin antibody, thyroid peroxidase antibody. So these are what are called tissue-specific antibodies, which are looking at antibodies against particular parts of the thyroid tissue. And there are multiple of these, but we can measure several of them. And two of them in particular are fairly common for thyroid autoimmunity. Thyroid peroxidase antibody is the most common and thyroglobulin antibody is the second most common. So we do a blood measure on those two typically. There's some more rare ones that we'll measure in certain cases, but those two are standard for, uh, for me in my practice. Those two are standard because I want to know if, if, it, if those are elevating, even if there aren't symptoms yet, because that could be early onset for something. Wow. Yeah. And this is so with the thyroid, it's so such a vulnerable organ, right? Because it, it seems to be that like it it has this unfortunate um, characteristic that it just so happens to look like these terrible viruses, right? So or pathogens or whatever. Um, so it just so happens like if you contract Lyme, it's like okay, well now the thyroid is in trouble because it just so happens to look like. Um, like the Lyme antibodies, is that what it is? The, uh, or the, yeah, Lyme the, well, the, Lyme, the actual Lyme, Lyme organism itself, part yeah. of the gene sequence, the DNA sequence looks a lot like thyroid tissue. Now, to be clear, there's also 
a genetic predisposition. So there's also a genetic predisposition to being susceptible to thyroid antibodies. So some people will have Lyme and get a thyroid autoimmunity. Other people will have Lyme, will never get a thyroid autoimmunity because they don't have that genetic predisposition, but they will get another autoimmune disease like rheumatoid arthritis, or they might get uh, multiple sclerosis, or they might get different, uh, different people have different genetic, what we call predispositions, which means the gene is there for the possibility. And then a trigger in the environment, the genetic predisposition, if you get no trigger, you can have the genetic predisposition for thyroid autoimmunity, never get it, never have it, never experience it. But then if you take a genetic predisposition plus a trigger, and Lyme could be a trigger for some people who are genetically predisposed to thyroid antibodies to produce those thyroid antibodies and start to attack thyroid tissue. So genetic predisposition plus a trigger is to activate that gene, to activate that genetic predisposition. And then you add in something like leaky gut or intestinal permeability. Now you're getting these food proteins moving through the blood, which normally shouldn't be there. The immune system can start to have those look like tissue and you can get activation of different autoimmune issues. So for it's not that everyone who has Lyme will get thyroid autoimmunity, but those who are predisposed to the possibility of getting thyroid autoimmunity may have it be triggered by if they get Lyme or even Epstein-Barr virus, which causes mono or several others can cross-react with thyroid tissue. Yeah, I was going to say, because not every, it's weird because I hear so much about Lyme and it must be so incredibly prevalent, which makes you think because it's, it's supposed to be tick-borne, right? I had a conversation with a woman. Um, I believe that podcast is coming out just before this one. So if you're a regular holistic nootropics listener, you probably know what I'm talking about. If not, you got to check out that podcast um, with Dr. Tanisha Ward. But she was saying that from research that she's seen, that it's very possible that not all Lyme is tick-borne, that in fact, it may even be, um, uh, I don't know if she said uh, like respiratory transmission, but she said it could also be like sexually transmitted. Um, So I'm curious if you've seen anything Maybe not to that extent, but like if you've seen any other way of contracting Lyme other than just through the tick-borne way. Yeah. So, so first, the stats on Lyme that are that are well documented, well researched, and there's lots of agreement on. There was a paper that came out recently that showed about 14.5 percent of the world population zero positive for Lyme. Zero positive means blood test positive. So the blood testing showed Lyme disease wow. first. Blood testing is not very good at finding Lyme, even when it's present. So the fact that 14.5% of people show zero positive for Lyme tells me, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, that as a Lyme literate doctor, that I believe that that's way, way, way of an underestimate because the zero marker, the, the, the conventional way of interpreting Lyme labs is very strict and it looks really only for acute Lyme and it doesn't recognize chronic Lyme exists. And this changed in 1994 and there's a lot of politics behind it that I won't go into, but really I believe that chronic Lyme is a thing personally. And I believe that chronic Lyme is significant way more than those statistics show, but they show 14.5% of the world population on average is positive, zero positive for Lyme. Now, if you look at the people who remember tick bite, 
that percent is much higher. In the U.S., people remember tick bite about a third, almost a third of them are seropositive for Lyme. But the, it means that a lot of people who don't remember tick bite are also positive for Lyme. So that does beg the question of, of, of why. And, and so in terms of the, the United States itself, 9.4% of the United States population was seropositive for Lyme. And in a, not only all in the the areas that are known for Lyme, but those areas that are known for Lyme, the percentage is way higher. So there's there's a little bit of controversy, but there's there's likely some placental, there's some evidence suggesting placental transmission, so mother to child. And the recent CDC estimates are, they, they used to say, oh, it's about 300,000 per year diagnosed new cases of Lyme. They've they've revised that and they've said now it's actually almost almost five hundred thousand four hundred and seventy some thousand new cases per year on average is their 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 now guesstimate and then you know I again believe this is an underreporting but you know almost half a million new cases per year many of those will become chronic even if they were treated treated Lyme, 10, 10 to twenty percent of treated Lyme becomes chronic and has chronic issues so. The, the numbers are growing. And then if you think about mother to child transmission as a possibility without ever having been exposed to tick bite now, you can understand why it might be growing even more. And then Lyme carrying ticks seem to be increasing in different areas all the way to the West Coast. So we see in California, in the beaches of California, in the brush, the Bay Area Lyme Foundation tested a bunch of ticks, many of them carrying Lyme. And so we see it coast to coast with varying degrees in different places. And, and then there's this songbird that can carry ticks across the country and those ticks can drop anywhere. And so there's clearly tick-borne, but there may be other vectors. And mother to child may be one. Sexual transmission, there's a lot more controversy over, and, and, um, but it is, it is a debate right now as to whether that could be another method of transmission. Yeah, I, I should I should also clarify. I don't want to throw Dr. Tanisha under the bus like that. I don't remember exactly if she said it was sexually transmitted. I feel like I remember her saying it was definitely it was probably placental. But she was the overall idea was that it's 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 highly possible that it's not just tick borne that there are other ways, and that's why you're seeing so much of it. Um, or at least maybe even because now you have more doctors like yourself, more functional medicine doctors who are recognizing the diagnosis of it. Diagnosis of it because it's it's such a difficult disease to diagnose for doctors. And I'd like to see Lyme expand to include co-infections because there are other tick-borne infections that aren't, that are for sure not only tick-borne. So Bartonella, for example, is often called cat scratch fever. We know cats can carry it and claw, cat claw scratches can mm. transmit Bartonella. We know that uh, certain, certain of these co-infections, so there's Bartonella, there's Babesia, there's Ehrlichia, there's Anaplasma, there's um, tick-borne relapsing fever, there's Rocky Mountain spotted fever, there's mycoplasma. There are a lot of these infections. If we expand beyond just Lyme and we talk about chronic infections that can be transmitted and become issues systemically in the body over long periods of time. Now we're talking spider bites and different insect bites, flea bites. We're talking, um, you know, of course we know for a long time, we've known mosquitoes can be vectors for certain. Mosquitoes. Uh, yep. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so certain infections can definitely be transmitted via 
many vectors beyond and how many people have a cat and have gotten scratched by a cat. How many, you know, it's when you start to look at, for me, I was really surprised when I got into this. I, I, I was thinking infection is was not nearly as big a deal as I do now after I started looking at research, after I started digging. And I, I, I'm thinking, wow, you know, if we expand this beyond Lyme to co-infections and we have a more liberal interpretation, I think a majority of people are walking around with one or more chronic infections. Now, some of them might not be affected by them that much and they may not be contributing to a symptom picture, but but I have to wonder how, how if we were to be more proactive in addressing these things, how many people would feel better? How, how much of the, the, the fatigue that people talk about with aging, how much of the cognitive decline that happens with aging would be less if people were to understand these? Because there's definitely a connection also between Lyme and these co-infections with Alzheimer's, dementia, memory dysfunction, brain fog, headaches, and many other cognitive issues, including depression, anxiety, OCD, eating disorders, things that usually are relegated to the realm of psychiatry or, or psychotherapy are actually very, very strongly research linked to chronic infections can be the onset for neuropsychiatric symptoms, for mental health concerns, which I'm really passionate about. I don't think it's been adequately addressed in the world. I, I, I like to educate people about that. So let's do that. Let's, let's go there. Um, Cause I'm curious, just from like a biochemistry perspective, how does something like Lyme um, or this infection or really any infection, but let's, let's stick with um, Lyme. How, how does that affect, like, how does that lead to something like anxiety, OCD, depression, um, let's go even go to the other side too. How does that affect memory loss, Alzheimer's, dementia, um, neurodegeneration? How, how does that on a biochemistry level, how does that happen? Yeah, 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 yeah. Good question. So, so, so historically let's go back to strep, strep infection, because it, what was happening is a lot of kids were getting strep and then all of a sudden they'd have personality changes. They'd, they'd be different. They'd start to have behavioral problems. They, they'd be diagnosed ADD, ADHD, OCD, eating disorders. They'd start to become sensitive to a lot of things. They'd get anxious. They'd, they'd get angry. They'd get frustrated. And for a long time, it was they were just sent to psych help for those things. And no one knew why they arose. There was no obvious trauma, emotional trauma, no obvious trigger. Like it, they just got strep throat. And then all of a sudden they had this, this issue. And we know now that, that, that streptococcus bacteria can actually cross react with the autoimmunity, with the immune system, cross react with receptors to dopamine in the brain, so dopamine receptors. So again, this cross-reactive autoimmunity where the, the tissue of this infection looks a lot like part of the gene sequence looks a lot like the receptors for neurotransmitters in the brain, neurotransmitters. So dopamine is a neurotransmitter in the brain and dopamine is a neurotransmitter that's related to drive. It's related to motivation. It's related to, 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 to feeling pleasure. And, and when that's disrupted, when the immune system starts to, it's trying to attack strep, but actually it starts to attack dopamine receptors and those dopamine receptors become damaged. And now there can be adequate dopamine there without the receptor sites seeing that adequate because they've been damaged. So they can actually have different expressions that can become imbalanced. And it's not just dopamine receptors. It's, it's, it's tubulin, it's lysogangliocyte, it's other parts of the brain chemistry that become damaged by this 
what we call a, a just to make it simple, a brain autoimmunity. That was well established a, a while ago. And then researchers started to figure out, oh, it's not just strep. It's actually Lyme, Borrelia burgdorferi, and it's actually Bartonella, that cat scratch fever that I was talking about, that Bartonella bacteria that, that can also trigger this. And they said, oh, it's actually also Epstein-Barr virus, which is what causes mono, which almost everyone has gotten at some point in their life. And, uh, and they say, oh, it also could be uh, certain strains of influenza, so certain flu strains, and, and probably other viral strains that haven't been researched. And they said, oh, it can also be toxins from mold and it can trigger this. So there are many, many things that if there's the genetic predisposition for this brain autoimmunity, that many different infections and some toxin triggers can cross-react and activate that autoantibody response against brain tissue. And various different brain tissues can start to be attacked by the immune system that can change the chemistry of the brain, that can change emotional experience, and that can change the also memory and also can lead to decline in cognitive function. People can feel brain fog sometimes. They can feel headaches starting to become a chronic issue. They can experience early signs of dementia. There's a study that was alarming that looked at people in their 30s for early signs of dementia and found 100% of them in that study showed at least one sign of early dementia. And so even little things that people don't like think about the fact that if, you know, if they just set their keys down and they can't find them, or if, you know, like they don't, they don't think of this as like a, a problem early on because it's so common. It's so common in our culture. Common doesn't mean it's not a problem. Like if you're searching for words, if you're like, wait, what's that word? You know, it, and if you're, if you like, or having a hard time remembering something in short-term memory, if you like put something somewhere and wait, wait, where is that? Like these things are actual signs that there could be an issue that's early. And I really want people to understand that, that, that they can seek some identification of why that is. So to go back to your question. So the actual mechanics of how this works is you get an infection like Lyme and then there you, someone has a, a genetic predisposition to one or more of these autoantibodies in the brain. And then that infection becomes a trigger because the tissue looks a lot like the, some of the gene, gene sequences look a lot like that tissue. And then the immune system creates antibodies against that tissue in the brain. And then that tissue in the brain gets damaged. And then that creates this brain autoimmunity that imbalances the neurotransmitters, which are part of how mood functions and the, 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 the brain itself and, and memory and, and, and things like there can be damage to that. So that damage then leads to those symptoms of anxiety or depression or obsessive compulsive disorder, disordered eating. And so anything in the, in the mental health spectrum could be, could be either triggered or worsened. If it's already exists, it could be worsened. And so when I'm doing a, like I'm sitting down with someone and I'm going over their history and if they tell me, look, I was pretty good at dealing with stress. And then this year, somewhere in that year, I don't know where exactly. I just started to get reactive. I just, I, I was, I was 
people were annoying me with things that wouldn't have annoyed me before. And I was getting a little bit angry and irritable. And I was, I started to get anxious. I started to feel anxious. Like I wasn't an anxious person before. And then I was anxious and there was no, no one who died, no huge like event that happened. Yeah. I have trauma in my past, but around the time that this happened, there wasn't, I I can't, I can't put my finger on a, a, a specific trigger often infection infection was that trigger. So, and even if someone can say, okay, I had a big trauma here. Sometimes we see that, that infection plus infection could have happened earlier and the trauma could trigger that to become worse and blow up. So, so we can start to see infections get triggered by trauma and, and, and trauma get triggered by infections through brain autoimmune. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that because I've, I've heard this so many times, the infection, um, like the infection affecting, uh, like an autoimmune type, well, not an autoimmune, but, um, but yeah, like some kind of brain deterioration. I never really understood it. Um, so I appreciate you explaining that. Um, I should also probably layer on top of that too, like the idea of things like glyphosate exposure, you know, because I've been reading a lot about that. I mean, that crosses the blood brain barrier and throws all of these different, you know, mechanisms off with everything from your your GABA receptors, your NMDA receptors, um, your neurotransmitters, um, all the way down to your gut, where it completely throws off balance these um, certain enzymes and these specific um, you know specific gut bacteria suffers, especially gut bacteria that you need that helps make the neurotransmitters in the first place. Heavy metal exposure because the heavy a lot of these heavy metals like the lead, the mercury, these things cross the blood brain barrier. Um, so it seems like it's, it's, it can't just be one thing, especially if this person, you know, has like a standard American diet or a standard American ish diet, or even they're trying to eat healthy. Like I should say too, you know, in the health community, we really like throw a lot of shade at the standard American diet, but it's a lot of these health diets too, that really kind of mess things up. Like, I feel like the most unhealthy people I know are people who are trying the hardest to be healthy. So, you know, whether it's vegan, keto, paleo, whatever it is, it's like these things also come with their issues. So like if you if you decide to be vegan and you're just eating nothing but plants, okay, maybe you might lose weight, but now you're eating a lot of these like lectins, oxalates, um, you know, you're probably eating inorganic vegetables, vegetables that have some exposure to glyphosate. Even the organic vegetables have exposure to glyphosate. The paleo people are dealing, and I know this because I've had it myself, you start dealing with higher fat consumption, higher meat and organ meat consumption. You start dealing with things like gout and kidney issues. The keto people, you know, they give up all the carbs, their metabolism gets crazy. Um, so, so it's, there's so many factors, but the infection thing certainly is a, is an interesting issue. Yeah. And thanks for broadening the context there. I'll, I'll add a few pieces to that. One is that like the amyloid plaque in the brain, which is the, the part that we see increase with Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, it, it used to be thought it's just a problem. We need to get rid of the amyloid plaque. A lot of drugs have been produced to try to get rid of amyloid plaque because they know that that amyloid plaque is affecting brain function. It's it, it's been discovered and, and pretty solidly linked that amyloid plaque is trying to protect against infection in many cases. Like it's mm. it's, it's laying down that plaque to protect from infection, which is very very interesting. That's the and cholesterol so, heart thing too, right? Like the, yeah, the, cholesterol, yeah. the cholesterol clumping up is not because you eat cholesterol; it's because it's protecting against uh, the inflammation of the arteries. Yeah, and cholesterol is really interesting too because cholesterol has LPS receptors, uh, lipopolysaccharide receptors on LDL particles, and lipopolysaccharide is an endotoxin that's on the cell wall of bacteria. They actually inject 
lipopolysaccharide, inject that E. coli into the bloodstream as a what we call an endotoxin test. And that endotoxin test gets people really feeling a bad way. They're, they're really uh, horrible symptoms for a few hours while their body is getting rid of those endotoxins. And so we know the body can try to deal with endotoxins in part through upregulating LDL particles because they have LPS receptors to bind the receptors, get them, bind the LPS, get it to the liver so that the liver can then put it into the bile and get rid of it. And But it it creates this big process. And there's a fascinating study on, on lipopolysaccharide with a certain breathing technique. Um, it, I don't know if I'll have time to get into that, but they, where they did this breathing and they didn't have any symptoms of the, the LPS um, normal endotoxin symptoms they have. So that's a piece. And then on the gut side, that's a big piece too, because we, there's one, my favorite study is these mice, this is a study in mice where they looked at, at they gave half of the mice uh, a sterile broth that had no probiotics and the other half uh, a feed that had lactobacillus uh, plantarum or rhamnosus, lactobacillus rhamnosus bacteria in it. And, and they were um, they were looking at the function of those mice to stress. So they were the mice don't like water, so they put them in a bowl of water. And the ones who did not have the probiotic, they were swimming, swimming, trying to get out, trying to get out for about two minutes, and then they just gave up. They they were done. They just floated on their back, like like okay, uh, I'm, I'm resigning to this situation. Like I'm not even going to try anymore. They burned themselves out. The group that had the probiotic, they swam for one minute, two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, five minutes, six. They like just kept going, and the and and so um, you know the exact details of the number of minutes are a little fuzzy to me. But they were going a long, a lot, a lot longer, a couple minutes longer, um, and they were still going. And they they took them out at that point because they said this is significant. They measured corticosteroid, which is like cortisol, a stress hormone for humans. In in mice, corticosteroid is what they measure, and then. They were also looking at GABA in the brain. GABA is a neurotransmitter in the brain. It's a relaxing neurotransmitter. It helps mitigate and manage stress and anxiety. And what they found is that the, the mice that did not have the probiotic, they exhibit a lot of corticosterone, so a lot of stress response, a lot of cortisol-like stress hormone, but they did not have much GABA. They had a little bit of GABA pulsing, but not a lot, and they burned themselves out. The mice that had the probiotic in their feed they pulsed. They they had a lot of corticosterone because it was a stressful experience, but then they had a lot of GABA release. And then they had a lot of corticosterone and then a lot of GABA. And the GABA was like calming them down and they were like stressed trying to do it, but then they were calm. They were regulated. They were stressed trying to do it, but they were calm. So from a neurotransmitter in the brain, neurotransmitter in the brain increased because of a probiotic in the gut. So what they did is they thought, well, why is this? So they, they cut the vagal nerve on those mice, the vagus nerve connects the, the gut to the brain, the heart to the brain. Many, many connections happen via the vagal nerve. And those mice went right back to the old stress response where two minutes or whatever it was for the, the, the sterile group that didn't have the, the, the better GABA response, the better stress response. They went right back as if they had never had that better stress response. And what the authors concluded is very clearly there are signals from the gut being sent via the vagal nerve to the brain telling the brain to make GABA. And the American Psychologic Association has come out and saying like a lot of the neurotransmitter in the brain is probably due to signals from the gut, maybe a majority of it. So, so we really see that gut plays a big role in regulation of neurotransmitters in the brain as well. 
And that's a testament also to the power of vagal nerve stimulation, right? Activating your vagal nerve because it's like you're talking about, okay, the two endpoints. And, you know, if you can optimize one endpoint, then the other endpoint's going to feed. But then you have that whole like highway that the thing gets transmitted, right? And so it's like you want to optimize that. And a lot of that vagal stimulation comes from, I mean, there's certain breathing techniques, obviously, but then like I've heard like, you know, exercise resistance training is good for that. There's certain relaxation techniques. Um, you know, are, are you familiar with, with like vagal activation? Do you have anything that you like in your kind of background as a alternative medicine practitioner that you like to use to kind of optimize that whole, um, you know, pathway? Yeah, because with Lyme disease and mold illness, there's especially Lyme, there's, there's a lot of nervous system regulation and we see both both vagus dysregulation and limbic system dysregulation very, very commonly. And so, so Lyme absolutely can affect the nerves and the nervous system. We see neuropathies like nerve pain. We see numbness, we see tingling, we see, we see significant impact to the nerves themselves. And, and it's, it's, it's hypothesized that maybe the bacteria actually can get into the nerves and infect the nerves directly and inflame the nerves. So, so there's a, a definite nervous system relationship that I deal with all day, every day in the clinic. And, and that is that we want to address the vagal tone and we want to address the limbic system activation. The limbic system is that amygdala fear response, that triggering, that 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 traumatic kind of a response. And a lot of people who've had chronic disease struggling with issues, they're not being recognized by medical professionals. Like they're going to have some degree of trauma, even if it's not overtly diagnosed as trauma, just having a hard time in life. And that's going to create these triggers in the brain. And, and these triggers in the brain, this limbic dysregulation, it destroys relationships, destroys people's self-confidence. It, it really makes a big problem for a lot of people to even be able to function in the world. So it's major and vagal nerve tone is huge too. And that vagus nerve, like we know infections like sepsis, if we can like reset the vagal nerve, we can actually do way better on dealing with those infections. And so, so there is an immune nervous system connection. It is really important. And the vagal nerve tone is one thing that, that we target and work on. And there are a lot of different ways to work on vagal tone. Uh, some of the simple ways that I like are are things like humming. Humming is really interesting because humming actually increases nitric oxide and the sinuses, and it can help with vagal tone. Um, didgeridoo. I play the didgeridoo. It's hard to learn, so people have to be committed to it. But the didgeridoo really does actually help with vagal tone quite a bit, and and if it it takes a it takes a person to master circular breathing, but just like playing the didgeridoo and the breathing and the vibration really do great things for vagal tone. There are many other things that, that are part of a vagal tone. We do meditation practices and breathing practices and, and, and then, and then we work on brain retraining for the limbic system where we help create new comparisons where people can calm that, that trigger response, that limbic system response. And, and, and just to, to broaden a little bit, like you were saying, there's so many variables here. And I want to recognize that because the listeners might be coming, well, this is getting complicated and there's lots of things here. Like the body is very resilient. The body is very resilient. Like you can handle a lot. You can handle multiple infections and people can, I mean, I'm surprised at the people who really like mistreat their body and like drink a lot of alcohol or do like horrible dietary stuff that, that are still reasonably functional. I am so surprised. Mm -hmm. So there is absolutely. 
Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off, but, um, it, it, I, this is what I say all the time. It's like you, it's not about, it's not about being perfect. It's just about knowing how to get yourself back. Right. So like, yeah, you could, you could be a health nut. You could be someone who's like got goals and you're like, I want to, I want to lose weight, which I don't think is a great goal by the way, or, you know, I want to achieve this thing, or I would just, I just want to feel better every day. Right. And then you do that for a while, but then you kind of fall back into these old programs. Like Tony Robbins calls it like, like old, like you, your brain has a certain program that it plays. And even though you go so long by not playing that program, at some point you're going to kind of fall off the wagon. You're going to lose the discipline or he's going to take a little break and you're going to fall back into that. It might start spiraling out of control, but your body's not going to completely fall off the track to where it can't get back together, which is why knowing some of these, I think alternative methods are really the best ways because they're very low cost. They're, they're um, many of them are easy to do like humming, you know, like if somebody knew that, Oh, I could hum, I could hum my way to happiness, you know, like it, you actually can in some regards. Now there's a lot more to it, but um, you know, certain breathing techniques like alternate nostril breathing, uh, box breathing, you know, certain um, um, like drinking water. Um, and then even like just practicing avoidance of certain things, right? Like, again, going back to the whole organic vegetable, organic fruits type um, thing, you know, or just buying stuff that's grown up, uh, that comes from farmer's markets. So you can be sure you're avoiding all of these toxins and pesticides and potential infections. Um, you know, it's about getting yourself back to that place that really is where the gold is and not trying so hard to be perfect. So, um, yeah, I find all that very interesting. Yeah, and I see, I, like there's a concept called allostatic load and that's where like you can, you can maintain a lot of dysregulation and toxin and infection and stress until, until you cross a threshold. The allostatic load is sort of like, how much can you tolerate before you become chronically inflamed, symptomatic, have issues happening? And it's a lot. So the thing that seems, people want the smoking gun. They want the one thing, right? It's like, oh, the infection is the cause or the, the toxin is the cause or, you know, this issue is the cause they want the smoking gun but what the truth is that there's been an accumulation of a lot of stuff over a long time before whatever it was that triggered the exceeding the allostatic load comes in so i see a lot of actual harm being done to people who they think it's Lyme is the only cause and they like go after that infection and they don't look at the gut. They don't look at nutrient deficiencies. They don't do a deep dive on diet. They don't look at breathing techniques and cold exposure and meditation practices and brain retraining and habit design. And they don't look at all those things because they think it's the one thing that's causing their issues. Now that thing may be a trigger that has led to certain symptoms that they don't like, and getting that infection down can reduce that, but they'll still be right on the edge of allostatic load if they don't change other stuff. And then something else can come along and push them right over. So, so I, I see much more benefit from people in looking at addressing many different asks. And sometimes it's not even addressing the infection that, that, that brings that allostatic load down. Sometimes it's addressing certain practices that people can start to do to build their resilience and tolerance in their allostatic load can increase the threshold and then they can tolerate having an infection without even necessarily having to eliminate the infection. So I, I really think it's important for people to understand that you can work on a variety of different areas in your body, in your life, in your mind, in your practices, 
And it's good to identify heavy hitters like infections and toxin accumulation. Those heavy hitters can play a big role in the allostatic load. But I encourage people don't think that it's one smoking gun and one thing that's that's doing that because there are many, many things that have come together and come to a head over time. And it's an, the healing process is an unraveling. And it's, it's gradual and it takes time when people really want to be resilient again and they've gotten to a point of being ill. It's a long time. And, and even people who are well and they're going to have some degree of allostatic load and, and to be able to clear that and build more resilience can prevent things like Alzheimer's and dementia, cognitive decline, like blood sugar dysregulation later in life, like things like cancer later in life. You, these aspects of of really dialing many different areas of the life and of your body and of different organ systems plays a big role in overall health and how you're, how much energy you have, how happy you are. So yeah, like absolutely humming is one piece of that. It's not what to is, be underestimated. Yeah. What, what is, cause you mentioned cold exposure, you know, in your experience, what are you using cold exposure for? What is the benefit of, uh, you know, cause you hear a lot of people um, doing the cold plunges. I love like a cold shower. I know what the benefit is for me, but I don't really know like what it's kind of um, doing in my body. Like what else is, what else is doing? So like, what would you recommend somebody do cold exposure? Obviously like you're not diagnosing anything, but just kind of seeing yeah. in your clinic and your practice day to day. And you, you know, you tell someone, Hey, cold exposure might work for you. Like what is the instance that you're doing that for? Yeah. So, so there's research that looks at, cold water swimmers, cryotherapy, and people who aren't doing any cold exposure. And what they find is that, that what happens is that you get a big bolus of what's called norepinephrine. Norepinephrine is, so epinephrine is also called adrenaline. And the norepinephrine or noradrenaline is a, it, it is a stress response. It's, it's a stress hormone, but it's also a neurotransmitter. And it, it, it also impacts the body in a lot of different ways. One of the ways it impacts the body we know is like that one of the first antidepressant medications was a, a norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. So for some people, the norepinephrine imbalance can actually cause depression. So one thing that's consistent with cold exposure, even just 30 seconds of cold exposure, is that it will upregulate norepinephrine about 200 to 300 percent. And that doesn't change. Like even when they did trials or they looked six weeks, they were trying to see like if people are doing this regularly, does it taper off? Do they get used to it? Do, do, does it like happen in the beginning, but not later? No, it happens all the time. It continues to happen no matter how many times people do cold exposure. Norepinephrine doubles or triples almost immediately. And then there's a, a then there is an increase in dopamine for several hours after. And dopamine increase is hard to come by with, you know, even things like supplements, there's often an up and a down to dopamine and dopamine is, it's really hard to work with. And you look at like things like the society, like triggers gambling and like many other advertisements and uh, even just dinging on the phone and like reminders, we're getting dopamine hits all day long and the dopamine system gets really taxed in our society. It's a, there's a book called Dopamine Nation. There's lots of like stuff about dopamine being really a, a key target for people. And we know cold exposure can be a, a regulator of dopamine for several hours after and help people to have consistent levels that are that are higher, help drive, help motivation, help people stay focused. So for people who 
are depressed or have mental health issues, cold exposure can be really helpful. It's it's starting to be used for trauma too. It shocks the body out of like a, a weird mind state because the only thing you're thinking about when you're in that cold is like the immediacy of the sensation. It pulls you out of your mind, pulls you out of your story, gets you into your body like quickly like seconds you're like okay i'm in my body like that's yeah. the only thing i can focus on right now like whatever story that was is gone for this time because i'm just trying to deal with this cold situation and it is a stress and i see cold as a metaphor like for me cold is a stress that i want to train my body to respond to stress by relaxing and not by freaking out like that would be that would be so wonderful for me to change fundamentally the way I relate to stress so that when I get a call like I did for my father's passing, what happens internally? So I go back sometimes I in my memory, I go back to that moment when I get in the cold and instead of <laughs> like tensing up, I getting in the cold and relaxing slow breathing, like really training. I'm getting into the parasympathetic nervous. I'm relaxing while my body is stressing out. And that is one of the things that I think is the most valuable is cold as a metaphor to train a, a, a shifted relationship to stress and to challenge and to discomfort. Because I actually think comfort is one of the biggest obstacles to health, like maybe the biggest obstacle to health. Because if people are comfortable in doing things that aren't good for them. And, you know, and so many people don't change because it's uncomfortable. And because comfort, because the identity is based on the past experience. Who I was is who I feel like I am now, typically for most people. Identity is rooted in past experience. If I've been doing this kind of behavior for this many years, I am the kind of person who does this kind of behavior. And it solidifies itself, that comfort in doing that. To be ready, willing, and able to intentionally go into discomfort and to relax, can train to be able to, hey, I know it's better for me to not do this behavior anymore and know it's going to be uncomfortable. I'm going to go into it and I'm going to relax. And if I get a call, if I get a stressful situation that comes up, if there's a relationship problem, I'm going to relax. My body is trained to do that. I don't have to think about it. My body is trained. So that's where I think cold is good. There are only a few contraindications to cold. So if someone has Raynaud's, then they need to be careful about cold exposure. Raynaud's is a, a circulation issue in the hands and and person who's pregnant should avoid. And uh, someone who has cold urticaria, which is an autoimmune condition against cold, those are contraindications. But most other people are, are fairly you know safe to, to trial cold exposure. And, and a, like you said, the, the cold showers are a great starting point for that. Yeah, I love it. It sucks because in Puerto Rico, like I can't get the shower to be cold. It's yeah. like I can get it to be like kind of like cold enough to where you first wake up in the morning. You're like, oh, that's uncomfortable. But it quickly like warms up and it's like, OK, I've had to manage, you know, just to kind of like train my brain. Like, OK, it's cold, man. Just deal with it. And then it then the next, thing, you know, you just like, OK, now I'm just now I'm just wet. You know, I'm not like getting the benefits. But when I was in New York, that's where I started doing the cold showers. The shower got so cold and I just loved it. Um, and when I travel, I go somewhere that's a little colder. Like I was in Europe um, last month and the shower got freaking so cold. I was taking cold showers every day. And it is, it's like, I remember now, like 
oh yeah, when you take it, when you get that cold, or if I go to the mountains here, um, you can find some uh, watering holes, they call them charcos that are frigid and you jump in those things. And it's like your whole mind, everything about you just changes. And it's just so amazing that, yeah, it is a stress response, but then you feel so incredibly relaxed after that. And it, yeah, it must be the dopamine's getting switched on. It must, or the dopamine's getting converted to norepinephrine, norepinephrine, just getting in, making that GABA system, whatever's going on. It's like, you feel like a different person. And I'll even take what you're saying to the next level and say, for me, what it is, is it's that it's that stress response, but it's also kind of almost this, like, um, the subconscious thing where I, I, I've trained myself and I said, this is going to be the shittiest thing I do all day. This is going to be my number one suck of the day. And I'm getting it done first thing in the morning. And then when I get done with it, it's like nothing else can suck as much as that cold shower. And then from that point forward, it's like now all of that stuff that could potentially stress me out. It's like, yeah, it just kind of falls off. Do I get stressed? Of course. But at the same time, it's like, how do you respond to it? That's the whole thing. And then it goes back to the whole nervous system, right? Because if you can control that nervous system response and you're not flicking on this, you know, kind of out of control cortisol response, sympathetic nervous system, then it's going to come back. It's going to help your digestion. It's going to help your metabolism. It's going to help your immune system, which of course, as we've been talking about for the last hour, cascades into all of these other benefits. Yeah, absolutely. And once you go into that, I mean, when I, you know, I've done, I, I spent some time with Wim Hof in, in Poland and we were like, they, they had this challenge of, of 15 minutes in ice, ice bath, total ice bath. And that was um, something that, that they, they said, challenge yourself. You can take up to 15 minutes. Um, me and many other people there, like went the full 15 minutes and, and to, to feel that like level of challenge and, and getting out on the other end, it was not comfortable. It was very, very challenging, but to get out on the other end and feel like, wow, you know, I did that. And a lot of other stuff seems minor in comparison. Now. So even just in the morning, getting in that cold tower, it's like, I'm ready for a challenge now. I'm ready. Like, bring it on. Like, let, let's see, you know, bring, bring life on. I'm ready to, to, to dive into life and experience more fully. Yeah. What a great place to end, Dr. Miles. This was a great conversation. I wish we could talk some more about, um, you know, some of this biohacking stuff I know you're into, um, especially considering, you know, your your history with Chinese medicine and um, herbalism and these sorts of things. But um, I'll be back for another one. We'll get into all of that. Um, but this has been a great time. I'm sure anybody listening who's made it all the way would love to probably catch up with you online. Where would a good place for someone go to find your work online if they want to work with you, if they just want to you know, keep up with what you're doing, where would you send that? Best places are, is my website, medicinewithheart.com. Medicinewithheart.com has a blog that's free, that has lots of interesting articles and information on it. And then there's also the ability to book a complimentary call with one of our staff to find out more about the clinic and working together. I do work with people all over the U.S. and to some extent, to a more limited extent across the world. So there, there is ability to uh, work with people no matter where your location is. The clinic is based in Colorado, but uh, anyone can get on a call with staff, just find out more, see if it's a fit. And then the blog is also on that same website, medicinewithheart.com. For practitioners, mindbodyfunctionalmedicine.com is the practitioner training institute. So mindbodyfunctionalmedicine.com for practitioners and medicinewithheart.com for the clinic for people who want to learn more about the clinic or, or walk, take, check out our blogs and our, our other informational content. That's available. Awesome. 
Cool. I'll be sure to include all that in the show notes and in the uh, podcast description, description uh, included in all the podcast players and the YouTube channel. Um, in other, uh, otherwise, Dr. Miles, thank you again so much for joining me today. This was a, a really fun, lively conversation. Listener, viewer, if you enjoyed what you heard today, be sure to check out Dr. Miles on all his platforms. And for more all things Holistic Nootropics, head on over to holisticnootropics.com and check out the free supplement buying guide right there on the homepage. And until next time, everybody, peace. Thanks for listening. For more brain-boosting info, in-depth articles, and show notes, check out holisticnootropics.com.